listening to another episode of Grace Matters, conversations establishing believers in the truth. This episode is a follow-up conversation with one of our panelists from the previous episode on contextualization. I enjoy finding time to sit down with our panelists and continue to unpack some of the things that we talked about during the panel. Be sure to listen to that episode. And if you have any questions that you'd like us to follow up on, please send an email to gracematters at graceccnc.org. Today, I'm sitting down with Rick Gutierrez, pastor at Anthem Church, to continue to ask some more questions. We had a great time at the panel, but I do want to continue to pick his brain because of his particular experience and uh, the ways that God has shaped him for pastoring in Andrew specifically. So Rick, thanks for being here again. Um, One of the things I'm really curious about as we think about contextualization is what kind of questions did you and your core team when you were planting, what kind of questions did you guys ask about the context of Anger as you were planting Anthem Church? Well, David, thank you for the question. I do appreciate being here, being asked to do this. Um, so with the team uh, seven years ago, so we're officially six and a half years old and uh, seven, seven and a half years ago, um, we were meeting and those were questions we were asking, you know, what are the specific needs or opportunities right. here in Anger or the Anger area? Okay. And um, the, the one que- the way I would pose the question to our church core planting group, our church planting team, was simply like, what are the wells that we need to dig? So I've hmm. been to Haiti, uh, I think on six different occasions since 2010. Huh. And one of the organizations we work with there, they do a lot of different work, but one of the things they do, they go throughout the country and they dig wells okay. because that's that's something that's much needed. Right. In what is technically a fourth world country, they're not even developing, they're going the wrong way. Uh, water hmm. there, clean water is at an extreme premium. Uh, cholera outbreaks happen all over the, all over the place uh, constantly. It's just it's, it's a bad situation, desperate poverty. So the organization um, they go around they dig wells because uh, people need water, but they specifically use that to leverage it in order to evangelize, yeah. share the gospel, and with the intention of planting a church where they dig a well, which is it's really cool, right? Yep. You know, here's water, but let me offer you living water. Yeah. Uh, so it's really neat. So um, that's one thing that we went into uh, a season of prayer and even some research. So we we're looking up, up all the, the data okay. in the community, demographics, you know, how the socioeconomic uh, st- status, how the, the population breaks up, um, single parent homes versus two parents in the home, just all of that. Yeah. And, uh, and we were careful. We were slow. We didn't jump too quickly. So it's almost like take a page out of the book of Nehemiah. You need to walk around the city a bit yeah. and not just come flying in. Oh, we know the answer. Um, no, you, you got to kind of get to know the, the town itself. Right. Uh, the people and the specific needs and so forth. So um, the one, there are several things that we outlined that we're still working towards uh, that are very, very major needs here in town. Um, again, the expression I don't like to use because of a bunch of baggage, but felt needs in the sure. community. Uh, but there are some very significant needs in town. And so we, we're just all, we're trying um, as best as possible to address those always with the intention 
of leveraging it for the gospel. So yeah. uh, we always tell our people, you know, we're not humanitarians. Um, mm. Humanitarians are just about helping humans. Right. Um, we're all about helping humans, but for the but we want to leverage the opportunity for the glory of God. Yeah. So the greatest need that somebody has is to know the gospel, to know Christ. Yeah. So we'll feed people, and if that's all that happens, well, at least a person ate something. But we want to feed them for the purpose of them knowing something greater, um, the one who provided the food to begin with. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we, we did a bunch of work. Um, research, a lot of conversations. I started meeting with the mayor at the time, the town manager, um, started volunteering with the Chamber of Commerce, uh, would meet with the police chief at the time, Hmm. just trying, like trying to get my finger on the pulse of the town. Yeah. Um, Because I I do think that if we're going to be part of the community, we have to be part of the community. So I started helping out with coaching soccer. These are just little things that we were doing. Um, Then... You know, as far as like trying to figure things out for ourselves, like we never specifically targeted a specific part of the demographic to go after right. to plant the church. Right. Um, kind of really took more of a Luke 10 approach. All right, we're the 72. We're only eight, but still right. we're the 72 and we're being sent out specifically to Anger in its area. Um, so let's just kind of walk around and knock on doors and see if we can find those uh, people of peace, as Jesus said in Luke 10. You're gonna, mm. Some are going to listen to you. Some are not. Um, you're going to go to some and some will accept you, some won't. And that's really all we did. So in our where we live in our specific communities and our cul-de-sacs, we just would talk to neighbors. Cool. And it was just that. It was very grassrooty and very uh, much just where we were, where we are. Um, well, that's our, contextual. Our, I mean, that yeah. is a contextualizing work. Like practically speaking, you, yeah, you did the, you did the homework, uh, the in the clouds work of looking at demographics, which I'm really curious to see the census data that we get from this round of the census. Yes. Like it'll be yeah. really fascinating to see what's changed in Andrew just in the last 10 years. And so, I guarantee it's tremendous. Yeah. So seeing that data will be really fun, but that's all up in the clouds. Mm-hmm. And so here you're talking about um, on the ground, contextualization is talking to your neighbors. Imagine that, yeah. <laughs> like actually going to someone's door and, and asking them, you know, what they think about the Lord and ultimately inviting them to a new church. Yeah. Um, that is, uh, that is contextualization in action, I think. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's just, that's really what we did. Um, it was more like we're open to whomever God brings to us. Yeah. We're open to whomever God opens the doors to. So we weren't targeting um, anyone of any specific ethnicity of any socioeconomic status or educational level. It's just, let's just see who will open the door to us. And in the midst of that, there was great diversity. Um, You know, African-Americans, whites, Hispanics, uh, people upper middle class and a lot of people lower middle class and and below. Um, People from South Carolina, people from Pennsylvania, Michigan, uh, people in the military, people white collar, blue collar. It's just whomever God opened the door to. And so... um, to me, the hard work of ministry or evangelism or church planning is how did then you appropriate the gospel when you're in a community where it's not homogenous, yeah. where you do have the former Mormon from Michigan 
And then you've got the former Seventh-day Adventist from Missouri. And then you've got the Catholic from Florida. And then, and all again, economically, socially, yeah. education, all over the spectrum. Yep. So it's like, for me, the hard work is on the front end of knowing the gospel so well that no matter who you can talk to, you can talk to them about it. So that brings up another question I was wanting to ask is in those individual, you know, the one-to-one relationships where we're, so you've, we talked about contextualizing in the church plant setting. Now it's contextualizing when we're sharing the good news with, with a person, how do you learn to listen to that person and kind of understand them? Cause you mentioned in the panel and again, now, you know, knowing the gospel so thoroughly you know, which comes from preaching it to ourselves, you know, daily, but knowing it so thoroughly that we can answer the hope that we have, but how do we learn how to, to, to listen to that individual context? How do we know how to hear someone's heart? Yeah. Like how, how do we learn that? <laughs> <laughs> Cause I, really that that's only the work of God mm. in us. Right. Cause we're all opinionated yep. and stubborn and, um, we just want to tell people what we think or what we know. Yeah. Um, and so I think the hard work of learning to listen is just that. It's hard work, a lot of prayer, hmm. you know, like a lot of accountability, you know, from the pulpit, from Bible study groups, like, hey, y'all, like, listen, 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 listen. Yeah. Um, uh, learning the humility that um, people have a pers- perspective and opinions and thoughts and troubles and to kind of slow our roll enough that we're willing to able to hear their heart. Yeah. So, cause when we're always talking, you know, it's not helpful. One thing that I wonder if maybe, maybe not so much for younger generation now, but definitely for maybe 40 year olds plus is that in the church context, we spend a lot of time in very specific kind of gospel track training yeah. You share the gospel this way. Right. Here are your, your statements. Here's the outline. Here's the method. Here's, yeah, the method. And you do, the, and you, it was almost like a script. Yeah. Like just wrote memorization. And there seems to be a place for that maybe. Yeah. But when your concern is memorizing a script or a track and then just kind of dumping it, it doesn't allow for any listening. Yeah. And so I think while mm. that well intended and while I'm clearly God has used it. Right. Um, there, there is that downside to it, that it, it trains only to talk. It trains not to listen. Mm. So I think anytime that we spend more time thinking through questions, well, what do you think? Why do you think that? Like, where did you get that from? You know, are you open to listening to anything else? Okay. You share something and you see it on their face. Cause we could read body language, yeah. facial expressions. And you see a person kind of recoil a little bit. It's like, well, you know what? I, I kind of noticed that you winced at that. Can I ask you why? Yeah. And, and it's just amazing. If you, if we would just spend more time asking questions, hmm. um, the person probably will get to a place of openness a lot faster than we're just telling them. Yep. Um, cause people deep down, I think, no, they may deny it. You know, if you ask them a question, do you believe in God? No, I don't. You start asking what and when, like eventually they actually will put themselves in place. Well, well, I think maybe there is. Right, right. You know, so. I think it's certainly important in relation to, again, what you've set up as a framework. We need to ask questions that we do have an answer for. 
I think one of the times that I've been kind of caught up in something that I wasn't prepared for was in interacting with somebody in a philosophy conversation. And, but then I asked a question that I didn't really know what the answer was either. And then all of a sudden we get off the rails. We're talking about, we're, we're, you know, waxing eloquent, hopefully, but just spinning our wheels, not making any headway towards the gospel, uh, because I didn't have an answer necessarily. Mm -hmm. And so even if I am asking a question and and seeking to listen, I want to make sure I'm asking a question that I do then have a response for if they ask me. So following your example, you know, know, do you believe in God? And if a person says, no, do you, why do you believe in God? If they turn it back on me, I want to be able to to answer that question well right, and not get lost and fumble the ball as it were. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think we can listen until we've done uh, that work of discovery in ourselves. Yeah. Cause to your point, it's, it's easier when you know the answers, but sure. clearly we don't know everything. We right. can't possibly know everything, but it's really interesting. So like, you know, Paul's toward the end of his life. So he's writing a letter to Timothy. So first Timothy chapter four, mm-hmm. verse 11 you know, command and teach these things. Yeah. And the verses right before that, especially at the beginning of chapter four, is there's a days are coming when there's going to be all sorts of false teaching, teachings of demons, you know, all this like crazy stuff going around. And uh, he says, put these bef- be- put these things before the brothers. So basically warn Christians, Christians of false teaching. Um, but, I, you know, by implication, gospel wise, it tell people, warn people. And so it's not just warn of the falsehood, but also teach the truth. Yeah. And uh, it just occurred to me, he said, well, why was Paul able to ask that of Timothy? Well, at that point, you know, it tells us in 2 Timothy um, chapter 1 and chapter 3 that Timothy had spent from his childhood learning the scriptures. Yeah. You know, his mom, his grandmother taught him, but he poured himself into scripture. And then at that point, uh, Timothy was Paul's boy. Yeah. You know, be a mentor for 20 years at the feet of an apostle. Hmm. So, I mean, however old Timothy happens to be, 30, 40, I don't, I mean, we're not sure, right? right. Um, he has spent his entire life learning and studying scripture. And I do think that one of the the downsides of coming out of the 1990s with a lot of the you know, seeker friendly church growth model, kind of lowering the bar of doctrinal understanding Mm. um, that it has affected or impacted people's ability to personally like synthesize the gospel into their soul to really fully know it Mm. and then go out and be able to just talk about it. Yeah. Um, and so then as a result, we're kind of rel- relying on these scripts. Right. Because instead really... of it being synthesized, it's compartmentalized. Right. It's this part of my life is the faith part. This is my work part. This is my family part. And we can talk about them all distinctly as opposed to syncretized as all right. part of what God like is doing. Integrated. Yeah. To, yeah. That's right. That's good. So I am curious as well um, about... Contextually, what it's like as a uh, Latino pastor in a majority white church. Uh, and then still, even with the demographics of Andrew being probably different than um, than I might guess, uh, it's still probably majority white town. So does that play a role in contextualizing or not? Honestly, no. Hmm. And I'm sure that, you know, different Latinos, 
you know, would answer that very differently. Yeah. Uh, for me personally, because I did move with my family to Andrew in 1981, and at the time there really were no Latinos, no Hispanics in really? the area. Oh, no, none at all. It was um, whites, whites and blacks. Yeah. There were a few uh, Hispanics around. They were mostly uh, migrant workers, so you'd right. see them a few months out of the year, different groups every year. And yeah. they weren't really part of the town or the community. Huh. They just worked the fields and... Uh, some may send their kids to school at the time. So we, we really were, especially in Andrew time, it was so small. We were the token, like Hispanic family. Huh. Um, we were kind of more like this weird, um, <laughs> something, you know, in a museum, right? Like, who, who are they? You know, that kind of thing. Uh, weird display. Um, so I grew up just around non-Hispanics, non, you know, whites and blacks. Yeah. That's just so that became my norm. Yeah, yeah. So into adulthood and now, I it just doesn't occur to me. I do. I don't think of myself as Hispanic or Latino. Mm. I don't think. I don't feel weird in a mostly white church if I've I've gone to a mostly black church. I don't feel weird because it's just normal. It's part of my routine. Uh, What's What's interesting is that I'm more often uh, told by people that are part of Anthem Church, it's like, man, I don't even think of you Hispanic. And, you know, part of it, 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 there's different reasons for that. But I think a lot of it has to do with just getting to know somebody. Yeah. When you just know a person personally, you just don't think along those labels Yep. uh, or those terms. So again, all things always come down to relationship. If we know people, those, those kind of categories just fade away anyway. Yeah. Um, but I will say just practically speaking, um, I, I am Hispanic. So my dad's from Costa Rica, my mom's from Honduras. They met in New Jersey where me and my sister were born. So we're American citizens born in the North. So technically Yankees. Okay. <laughs> I, we did live in Honduras for two years. So huh. like 1979, 1980, cause okay. that's where my mom's from. We moved to Anger. I won't go into that long story in wow. 1981. Um, then I grew up here, got saved at 13 in a Southern Baptist church. Wow. Little country Southern Baptist church. But my parents grew up Catholic. And then I went off to UNC Chapel Hill, was a business major called College of the Ministry. And then by God's providence, end up back in Anger. Wow. At, you know, when I'm like 40 years old um, to plant a church. Meanwhile, I have married a white woman from New York state. Okay. You know, so not the city, but, right. uh, and, um, and so when we moved back, it actually occurred to me that I am now, I am the poster child of Andrew because hmm. there's that minority thing, but then I married someone who's part of the majority. Yeah. Um, Hispanic, I'm first generation. Well, there's so many Latinos, Hispanics, first, second, third generation yeah. here now. Um, college educated. Like, so I really kind of am the poster child of the, the kind of overall general demographic in town. So yeah. I, I wonder, I don't know this for sure. I just, I just wonder if that has opened up certain doors at different times. Yeah. At the very least, give me a little bit of street cred. Right. Uh, <laughs> but no, it's, it, it has proved valuable and that's not my doing. That's all God's providence and yep. sovereignty and how he works through it. Amen. It has opened up doors that I don't think would have been open to most other people. Yeah. Uh, so it's been, it's been neat as I go back and think through yep. how everything worked out. 
it's God's at work. Yeah, no, that's, that's very interesting. Um, I do want to encourage folks who have not had a chance to, to see it yet. Um, Pastor Rick preached a sermon um, right after uh, racial tensions inflamed uh, here in our country uh, that he recounted uh, his interaction with racism and a biblical response to that. So you can find that sermon and a bunch of others uh, on Anthem Church's Facebook page and through their website. Um, and so he digs a, a lot more into issues of racism specifically in that sermon. And so you could go there and check that out. Um, I was encouraged by it, which is why I felt comfortable asking that kind of question uh, yeah. with Rick. You know, what is it like? Um, I think that it is important to get to know folks who are different or who may be different in some way. And everybody's a little different, but uh, to, to see those barriers broken down in Christ means to, especially as believers, build relationships with people who are not like us. Um, we, we're not going to see any reconciliation apart from relationship. And so um, I appreciate how you brought that out to the forefront. Yeah, that, that was by far the scariest message I have ever given because that was right after um, George Floyd yeah. was, as I call it, publicly executed. Yeah. Um, and I just felt the absolute need to say something. Yeah. And uh, what I chose to do is basically that Sunday to give my own personal testimony, yeah. really, in regards to growing up in a country, you know, town where we were the only Hispanic family. And the racism that we did experience. Yeah. Um, that being said, I've never really been denied anything. Right. So, you know, I was able to go to college. Like, so while there has been racism, the, the form that I have personally experienced is not the kind that has suppressed me. And the places where it has caused personal offense and personal hurt, God has redeemed. Yeah. Um, and, and he used it really to hone me in a way, I think, to prepare me for ministry, uh, to make well, me yes, definitely. sensitive <laughs> sensitive for uh, to certain people. Yeah. Implied, it, it's, it's given me a perspective that I can't, I do understand both aspects or all three or all four aspects of the conversation. Right. And so I don't begrudge any of it at all. There is no uh, ill will, animosity, resentment. Uh, God really did use it to do something really interesting in me specifically. Um, yeah. And so anyway, here I am trying to, <laughs> still trying to figure things out. Yeah. And I think that um, I've been recently uh, enamored with some of the thought from George Yancey, who's a professor at Baylor and has written a couple of books. Um, but his work focuses on how uh, the church and then interracial marriage are both the the most appropriate contexts to see racial reconciliation um, that in that covenant relationship where people are covenanted together um, with the power of the Holy Spirit uh, that's where we see real reconciliation and that makes complete sense biblically um, what the two institutions that God created yeah imagine that <laughs> marriage right? and church right yeah and so uh, it's then it then it helps I think with what our expectations as believers uh, should be for those outside the church. Like we have to keep in mind that the government institution, the institution of the United States of America is not spirit filled. It is not all God's chosen people. Like that's, 
that's a hard thing to keep in mind. Right. Um, and it's easily, easily conflated with other ideas from the scriptures of nationalism and, and stuff. So that's a whole other conversation. But, right. um, but I appreciate how you brought out, you know, how relationship is necessary. And then the fact that like in your church context, you guys aren't, uh, I don't think, I don't perceive that you're struggling as it were with, um, racial tensions. You're actually seeing the fruit of racial reconciliation because you guys are seeking to worship God together and find your identity primarily as believers. Right. And then well, one thing we did always pray from the very beginning, continue to do is that we do want to be ethnically diverse Yeah. or, you know, pro, uh, the better way to say it, we would be, um, diverse from a melanin content yeah, yeah. standpoint. Uh, we, we have always specifically prayed for that and, um, we haven't targeted, you know, in, by, through any kind of methods, we're going right. to try to target X, Y demographic to bring them in. It's, it's, we're just letting God do what only God can do. Yep. That being said, he has blessed us that there is some diversity, not as much as we would like, but sure. there is, there is some there. And, uh, what you see is, uh, I believe a very genuine spirit of love among the people. And it's just because God's people just love each other. Yep. You know, the world will know you as my disciples by your love for one yep. another. Um, and so we see in the God, we do see very organically, naturally among God's people, a love for one another. And people just, I don't think when there are differences in skin color, like people won't even think about it. Like it doesn't, it just doesn't occur to us. Yeah. It's just very normal. Yep. Um, which is which is really neat. So I will say this, uh, and I don't even know if this came up in uh, the previous conversation when all of us were in on that on the call. But um, you know, one thing as far as reconciliation, reconciliation can only happen if the gospel has been accepted first. Yep, exactly. And that's, yep. that just makes it the conversation even more dif- different or interesting or yeah. distinct because like there's such a call now. Mm-hmm. We need unity. We need unity and. And depending on how you're defining that, I get it. Yeah. And depending on how you define that, I understand and even agree. But as a believer, I I know ultimately I can only be in unity with those who are fellow believers. In Christ. Yeah. In Christ. Yep. So, you know, what does light have to do with darkness? Yeah. You know, believers can't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And so if we truly want... um, whatever degree of unity in the world, there is only one way for it to come about. It's like share Jesus, share Jesus, share the gospel. Yep. And uh, as people come to faith, we'll, we'll see unity unlike anything we've ever seen before. Hmm. Were there any other things from the ideas of contextualization that you feel like we didn't hit hard enough in the panel or anything lingering do you want to drop as we finish up? All right. So to contextualize, so I'm going to speak now just from the perspective of a pastor, okay, specifically one who preaches more often than not on Sunday mornings. Right. So uh, this is a bit nuanced to Anthem Church. So we are a mutt of a church. Right. And um, if we poll the people that are there, a certain amount of people grew up Baptist. 
But some of them are a bit Arminian-leaning Baptists, and some of them are a bit Calvinistic-leaning Baptists. (laughs) Uh, We do have people that uh, have Presbyterian backgrounds, Catholic backgrounds, uh, Lutheran backgrounds, Methodist backgrounds, non-denominational backgrounds, charismatic backgrounds, uh, people that actually have a a Seventh-day background. Right. Uh, And we've had people come through that are of other um, persuasion such as Jehovah's Witness and Mormon, hmm. and then the non-church or non-believer pe- uh, folks that have come yeah. to Anthem on a Sunday morning. Um, as a church plant in particular, we did very much initially, we're reaching like disenfranchised believers. So people who spent you know a certain amount of time yeah. in church growing up, but then... Uh, post-church folks. Yes. So yeah. they've been gone for 5, 10, 20 years. Yeah. Um. A lot of wounded folks, probably. Yes, a lot of wounded people for a bunch of reasons. So um, because of the diversity of perspective or understanding, it greatly affects how I preach on a Sunday morning. Hmm. I can't make any assumptions about what people believe or about what people know. Hmm. Um, So you can go to certain churches where, listen, I mean, they're very reformed, right? right? You can smell it. You walk in the building and you can smell the reform, <laughs> right? Uh, of which I am, but so right. anyway, um, it just, in it, so the preaching sounds reformed. The music sounds reformed, right? right. It just, it just, there's a, a cultural nuance to some churches in their reformedness, right? Yeah. Um, well, if I was to go preach there, I would preach a certain way because I would understand my audience. Like that I have a, a preaching context there, yeah, yeah. right? Um, well, I've gotten to preach at other settings where it is, it's a little different, you know, maybe more charismatic. Yeah. And so there's certain language that I would choose not to use there, whereas I might use it if I was preaching a message at chapel at Southeastern. Right. You know, it's the same way if I was preaching to adults versus children. You mm-hmm. know, you choose to use different language to communicate. Um, so one, that's one thing that I had to really, really learn, and it's a discipline that I have to... Um, actively uh, engage in week to week as I'm preparing a sermon. Yeah. I cannot make any assumptions. Like not everybody knows the story of David and Goliath. Right. For some of us, we grew up, I've known it for 40 years, right? Yeah. Uh, so a lot of people like at our church just don't. Yeah. And so I don't water anything down. I'm at in, in, I just choose, therefore, to use certain language a certain way. Yeah. Uh, I may not necessarily use the word regenerate. You know, in certain contexts I can, right. but at Anthem I don't. Or yeah. if I do, I have to define it. Yep. Um, and so I think that that, because we're this weird, mutt kind of United Nations sort of a <laughs> of a church, I have to think very strategic. I have to wordsmith a lot. Yeah. Um, I can't say as much as I would like to on a Sunday morning. I have to edit a lot out because right. I have to spend more time uh, distilling other things. Mm-hmm. So uh, for me personally, that's just, in, I enjoy it. It's, it's made for some interesting conversations. I can, I've, I've done a Bible study before and afterwards I've been accused by one person for being a liberal theologically okay. and by another person as a flaming fundamentalist. Having talked the about same the content. exact same yeah. thing, the same Bible study about a specific issue, and to one person I was a liberal, to another one I was a fundamentalist, hmm. because that is kind of who Anthem is. We really, God has brought so many people from different backgrounds 
And so, you know, I'm just, what's the scripture say? What the scripture say? And it's, it's just, it's a neat experiment. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's, it's fun. That's why I've lost so much hair, but. <laughs> now that's a really great insight for any folks at any local church. Your pastor is doing something like what Rick is having to do. They're contextualizing uh, that sermon uh, for you and for your folks in that room. And that's not an easy job. It requires a lot of thought uh, that maybe you weren't aware of to that point. Let me add this, because this may be, this is kind of a shocking thought. So um, Spurgeon, known as the Prince of Preachers, right? right? That's just the title we've given to him. Uh, Lived in 1800s in England. And uh, if you ever get to hear someone with an English accent or a Scottish accent read and preach a Spurgeon sermon. It's, it's art. It's, yeah. it's wonderful. It's beautiful. Um, well, let me just say that Spurgeon could not take that sermon and preach it today in the United States. Um, you can only preach it at extreme elite churches where pretty much everyone has a PhD right. or at a seminary. Yeah, because he would reference, he would give half a verse. He's talking, barely reference a story, but everyone knew the story. So you just keep going where you can't do that today. So I think increasingly because we know the nons, like the nons are on the increase. How many people haven't grown up in church or have no Bible literacy whatsoever that I would say that it is harder today in the United States to preach than ever before in our nation's history and maybe even in the world because of the incredible diversity that are showing up at any of our worship services. Yeah, um, People are coming that have no sense of understanding. Um, you know, I'm not saying it's harder than a persecuted land where you might, you know, something awful might happen. Right. But I'm just saying from a trying to communicate, it may not be any harder anywhere else in time as it is right now in the United States because mm. our context Overall, uh, culturally, society, for speaking from a societal standpoint, is so broad. Yeah. So if you really want to teach, it's really harder to teach now. Hmm. So, folks, pray for your pastor yes. <laughs> when you're thinking about them. As you arrive on that Sunday morning, pray for that delivery of that contextualized work. Uh, that God is doing through your lead pastor. So Pastor Rick, thank you for taking time to sit down with us and continue to unpack these ideas of contextualization. And we're grateful to be in proximity to Anthem Church and what God is doing through you guys. Yeah, thank you, man. Appreciate it. Be sure to listen to the other supplemental conversations coming out of the contextualization panel. I'm glad Rick had time and I look forward to catching up with the rest of the panelists. Again, if you have any questions, please send an email to gracematters at graceccnc.org. And we would love to have your feedback if you can leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. You've been listening to Grace Matters, conversations establishing believers in the truth.